You're listening to this Choir Nerd podcast, where I blabber on about music things, mostly. I'm your host, Mark Davin. Congratulations, you're listening to my first podcast ever. How'd you like that intro music? It takes longer than you think, searching the internet to find just the right audio clip that best suits the mood for one's podcast that hasn't been done yet. So I suppose we'll figure out by the end of this if it was the right choice. Another annoying discovery of making podcasts is the noise. I live downtown Seattle, and it is just noisy down here. And it doesn't help that there is a huge office building being constructed right next to me, so I hope you can forgive all the uh, extra noises you might catch during this podcast. I plan on posting all of these podcasts on my website, markdavinobenza.com. I've written some blog posts there, which might be of interest to some of you, Um, but it takes me so long to write. Um, So I'm experimenting with this podcast medium to see if that's just a more efficient way for me to get out my, my ideas about music and other things. But go to the website and check out some of those posts I've written and um, you'll eventually be able to catch more of these podcast episodes there. For my very first podcast ever, I'd like to talk about a recent choral concert I attended by a local group called Opus 7 and um, share some ideas about better preparing ourselves for concerts. Now, it might suggest that there was something wrong with the Opus 7 concert by talking about these things in that order. Uh, that is definitely not the case. It was a very good concert, and it helped better form my ideas about preparation. Um, I'll say more about that after I talk about the concert. Before I talk about those things, I should probably fill you in on a little bit of my background. I promise this will not happen again. But for those of you that don't know me, this might be of interest. I grew up in Seattle, singing in the Northwest Boy Choir, uh, under the direction of Joseph Krinko, who, as of today, is still the choir director there. I'm pretty sure he doesn't age, so um, he probably will be there forever. I had a pretty sexy soprano voice, as you can hear here. Where does the time go? When my voice dropped, I joined Vocal Point Seattle, a high school group that sang pop music with backup singers, um, and it was taken very seriously, maybe a little too seriously. I then joined the Compline Choir in 2000 under the direction of Peter Halleck and learned to sing countertenor, or male alto. It was my first exposure to Renaissance music. In 2001, I joined the Tudor Choir, directed by Doug Fullington, 
which unfortunately is inactive at the moment. It was my first professional choral experience singing alto. All that money was probably spent drinking after concerts. In 2004, a small group of friends and I started our own early music group called the Renaissance Singers. Uh, We started performing in West Seattle, and in 2011, rebranded ourselves to the Bird Ensemble, a group of 10 to 12 singers that perform Renaissance polyphony. And yes, the singers are paid. The Bird Ensemble currently presents a concert series at St. Mark's Cathedral on Capitol Hill, where the Compline Choir also sings every Sunday night. So if you are interested in checking us out, do visit our website at birdensemble.com. I also record other classical groups in the area under the label Scribe Music, which I am the producer for. Scribe Music is an independent record label managed by Joshua Haberman and myself. We produce recordings for other music groups and help distribute them. Last year, I started another group called Box 16, which is a chamber choir of 16 singers that does some early music, but also some contemporary stuff too. It's a paid group like the Bird Ensemble, but the fees aren't the same. Uh, We're just starting it out, and it's going to take a few years to build the group up where we can pay each singer the standard fee, which I set at $100 a singer per service, that being a rehearsal or a concert, at least for the Bird Ensemble. Should be more, but getting there. I'm also the choir director at Trinity Episcopal Church on 8th and James. So that's basically it. And uh, if there are bigger choir nerds out there, please come forward. So, about that Opus 7 concert. It's great to attend concerts put on by other groups. I don't do it enough. I usually end up listening to music that I'm totally unfamiliar with, feeling some kind of blind spot in my knowledge of rep. Let's face it, if you program concerts for long enough, you're bound to run out of ideas. So it's definitely worth catching a concert here and there for that, and to show our fellow choir groups some love. If you've been to St. James, you'll know that the concert-going experience there isn't the best. The sightlines are terrible. I doubt there's a seat anywhere there where you can see all the singers. Maybe on top of the altar? I ended up in the North Wing which I've decided is the best spot at St. James. You could see nearly all the singers, and the sound is pretty good from that area. As Opus 7 walked on, about 25 or 30 singers strong, maybe more, I noticed two things immediately. First, one of the Sopranos has very pink hair. I know the Soprano. In the sea of black tuxes and black dresses, it wasn't hard to miss. It's not a bad thing. I quite like it, but very pink. It's like she recharged her hair before coming on stage. Second, tuxes with cummerbunds. I can't quite tell if this is a bad decision or hipster. At this point, I'm settling in, taking comfort that I am a mere audience member. If a train wreck happens, I can snicker instead of wallow in my own sheer embarrassment while I plot out my escape. There was no such disaster at this concert. The concert, titled Phoenix, named after Peter Halleck's piece, featured music for Lent. 
It included a good selection of 19th through 21st century music. One thing you notice right away is that Opus 7 has good basses. They've always had good basses as far as I can remember. It's a rare thing to hear, but once you do, there's no turning back. I attribute this partly to Gus Blazek, who I've worked with before. That dude has a low voice. Seriously. I'm not as familiar with the other basses, but they definitely also contributed, as the bass section sounded like a section, indeed. I appreciated the Kozuski Miserere, but particularly the Phoenix by Peter Halleck. This was sung at Halleck's funeral at St. Mark's Cathedral, but Opus 7's rendition was far superior. They hit a good speed and made a beautiful sound. It literally brought tears to my eyes. Opus 7 is one of three choirs in the area that makes the best choral sounds, in my opinion, the others being Choral Arts and Seattle Pro Musica. If you haven't heard these groups, you totally should. Listening to the concert reminded me how different a performance is from a rehearsal. Before I go there, I just want to reiterate that what I say next is no way criticizing Opus 7's fine concert that evening. Being an audience member and not being on stage for a change just brought to my attention how performing is so different than rehearsing. And by exploring in what way specifically, I think we can better prepare ourselves for concerts. In a concert, you only get one chance, one moment in time to get it right. Where in rehearsal, you get to repeat pieces, fine tune and polish them. We work on the details, when to get loud and when to get soft, over and over again, so the concert performance is perfect. But I think in some ways, we fail to simulate the performance environment. In the concert, as you begin any piece, you are in unfamiliar territory. Yes, you've rehearsed it, in some cases many, many times, but you have not experienced singing the piece exactly in this context, in this exact moment in time. There are so many factors already that make this different from your normal rehearsal. The space, how well you can hear each other, if any singers are sick, how well you can see the conductor, your own nerves, the list goes on. And on top of that, the fact that the success of the piece is largely dependent on how well you start it. No pressure, right? In my experience in recording sessions, the vast majority of flat or sharp singing happens immediately, and that's the same for tempo. In other words, if a piece is going to go flat or sharp, it's going to happen within the first 30 seconds. If a piece ends up too fast or too slow, that also happens within the opening. It's all about getting a good start. How do we simulate this environment in rehearsal? Well, we can't really, in an absolute sense. But there are a few moments where we can come close. That moment when we start rehearsing the next song where we have no clear sense or hints of the tempo or pitch, we're going to it cold like in a performance. That is a crucial moment in rehearsal, where we can practice making a group effort in concentration and focus as we start that song for the first time. That extra focus to latch on the given pitch, measure accurately our respective pitches, and be ready to take the tempo at hand together as a group. Okay, so we'll pay a lot of attention when we start the next piece. 
What happens after that? Well, the best way forward is the path of least resistance. Let me explain. I bet you have been part of a performance where the choir's pitch is sinking, but one stubborn person, instead of wanting to be a team player, wants to be a pitch hero and sing contextually sharp as if they are doing the choir a favor. Or maybe you've been one of these stubborn people. Or maybe you've been part of a performance where the choir on the whole wants to be a little behind the tempo and one stubborn person wants to be a tempo hero and sing where the tempo should be. These pitch and tempo heroes aren't doing us any favors. They are actually making it worse. A good performance is based on the fundamental tenets of pitch and tempo, but more importantly, that everyone in the choir sing in the same pitch and tempo universe, no matter where the group ends up in pitch or speed. In other words, I'm saying that it is better to hear a choir sing a piece a half-step flat, but in tune with itself, than a choir with a few singers refusing to let the piece sink and remain in ugly dissonance with the rest of the group. This act or skill of conforming to the group is the most important skill an ensemble singer can possess. It has a huge impact on the quality of performance. The skill is what I like to call contextual singing. Each performance is unique, and each singer needs to be ready to adapt to the unique conditions. The space, the sudden drop in tuning or change in tempo, every singer must be aware of these things and be ready to make the proper adjustment. This ability to adjust contextually is invaluable. How do we achieve this level of awareness? It requires a good ear, but this is something that every singer can improve. It begins with every singer knowing the notes so well in rehearsal so they have enough brain capacity to be sensitive and react to the singing around you. It does require the director to be a good technical musician. In my opinion, the director's value isn't based so much on his or her arsenal of gestures, but their ability to help facilitate this kind of growth, this kind of listening within their choirs. I should note here that in a professional choral setting, the director may not have enough time to extensively train their choir in the art of contextual singing, with only a few rehearsals before each performance. But the level of the director's musicianship is even more crucial in order to identify and hire those that have this skill set. Contextual singing doesn't come easily for everyone, particularly ones with perfect pitch. With such an absolute sense of where pitches should be, it makes total sense that it would be hard to adjust to a choir that's in the cracks. A flat plus major key probably registers like nails on a chalkboard to some with perfect pitch. It's funny how many people think perfect pitch is a blessing. I most definitely think it's a curse. This act of conforming to the group mentality isn't just for the singers, but also for the director. Directors definitely have some rights to interpret a piece, in some way spontaneously, in concert, but go too far and they will have masterminded an epic train wreck. There's nothing more frustrating as a singer than watching a director take drastically different tempos in concert. Talk about sabotage. 
Some directors have asked me, my choir sings fairly in tune internally, but they always go sharp or flat all the time. Well, the easiest solution is to hire people that naturally sing in tune. And that does require that the director have a good sense of who those people are. But maybe you're the director of an unpaid group or a community choir. I'd suggest really focusing on that opening 30 seconds of a piece to make sure the group is in tune and hitting the right speed. If not, it's worth correcting right away. It's much harder to fix once they've internalized something that's wrong. Well, that concludes my first podcast ever. Hope you found some of this useful. You can follow me on Facebook or on Twitter at this choir nerd. And uh, I'd love to start these off with a question and answer segment. So do leave comments and I will do what I can to answer them on this podcast. Well, thanks for tuning in and happy singing. <laughs>